This week on the podcast, talking about why now is the best time in history to launch your capital campaign. And this is a long, long episode, but it's worth it. Trust me. And we're going to roll right into it. This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. All righty. Today's guest is CJ Orr, the COO of The Orr Group. How's it going? Going very well, George. How are you? I'm doing fine today, and I am excited to have you on because you're going to tell us how to get tons of money. But before we get to that, what is the Or Group? Very good question, George, and uh, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Uh, I've I've read or listened to many of them before, and I'm excited to be um, part of a great group of speakers. So the Or Group is a is a group, uh, pun intended, of uh, fundraisers. Uh, we work with over 40 nonprofits at any given time. Uh, there's about 55 fundraising professionals here, and we do everything from camp- capital campaigns, annual giving, interim development services, you name it. If it involves raising money, uh, we like to be involved. Um, we also do a lot of development assessment strategy, uh, major gift fundraising, um, and a, a lot of things uh, like that. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get into some of that during the call today. Awesome. So I have you on today because we were at a bar and we were talking and you're like, you don't understand, George. There's just tons of money waiting for nonprofits if they know how to make big asks of people that have tons of money. I was like, well, that sounds like an obvious statement, but you convinced me and I want to, I want to hear the pitch. Why is now the best time in history to be going after these big dollars? Well, first, I think all great ideas come from bars, and maybe it was a few beers that convinced you, but um, no, I, I I think this theory we've been working on here at Or Group for a while, and it's really been coming to fruition over the past year or two. Our theory is pretty, uh, it's simple, but it's backed up in a few facts that I'm sure we'll have the chance to go through. Um, but we've been working with all of these different types of organizations uh, on, on fundraising large dollars, and we've been hearing very common uh, threads um, about how now versus any other moment in the history of philanthropy is the best time to be either launching a capital campaign, going aggressively after major gifts or planned gifts, Asking for more than you ever traditionally have at your organization. So that's our theory. And we have been uh, probably at any given time now, we're working on about five different capital campaigns, um, working on uh, major gift portfolios where we are going above and beyond asking at levels that we've never asked before. Maybe in the beginning of a feasibility study, we started and said, hey, we can probably raise $10 million. But as we get into the weeds and pull back the layers of the onion, we're starting to now see it's maybe we should be asking for $15 million or $20 million. Um, the levels that we're asking for have been increasing. 
And our theory is there's three unique reasons as to why that's happening. So I'm going to go through each. And George, tell me if you have uh, any questions about any of these yeah, reasons. I'm I, happy um, to. I like I like where we're headed. You have me excited. I'm already thinking. I, my mind has wandered into like, all right, how am I going to go get some of this? I want to pause though and ask you, what is a capital campaign? What is the anatomy of this? Like, you know, is it a document? Is it a statement? How do I get one? Where is it hiding? So any nonprofit has their annual fundraising that they do every year, maybe through an annual appeal or their board gifts or things that they traditionally do every single year. A capital campaign is something, a, a, a large fundraising initiative that might not be every year, but they do every few years or when they have a very specific project that they're looking to raise money for. For example, let's take a hospital. The hospital over the years has uh, grown older and it needs a complete new renovation or it needs to be knocked down and rebuilt. So this only happens once every 50 or 100 years, depending on the lifespan of the hospital. So the hospital, if they need to rebuild it, they need to raise over the next few years hundreds of millions of dollars that they traditionally have not raised annually. So what they need to do is take a totally different approach and uh, build their case statement and all their materials and approach their closest donors and ask for a gift that has never been asked before. So maybe this annual donor is giving $100,000 a year to the organization. Now as part of this capital campaign, you're asking that donor to do a larger gift than they ever have previously because you need to raise more money than you ever have previously to fund this project. It could be an endowment, it could be a wing of a hospital, it can be a new church, or it could be all various type of reasons. Um, but it's something that is much larger in scope and size than you traditionally would do in your annual fundraising operations. So it sounds like there's an element of specificity. There is a grandeur about what we're asking. It's not operations as usual. It is something that is going to get us from uh, 1x to 10x. We're capturing hearts and minds, and it can come in the form of statements, papers, what have you, but it's really about encapsulating it. Is that a fair summary? That's very fair, George. You must All work right. with a lot of nonprofits. <laughs> yes. I, I know I know a nonprofit. So where were we? We're talking about the the three reasons why putting this together in our current climate is really smart. Why? There are three things that are happening right now that have really never happened at the same time before. So let's start with just the general economic growth. The economy is obviously booming right now and has for the past 10 years since 2008. It's at what right now argumentatively at the top of the business cycle. So uh, economic growth is up, uh, GDP is up, you know, GDP is, is consistently growing. The unemployment rate is at the lowest that it's, it's really ever been. Um, right now it's at like 4.4%. Everything is going well for the economy. So basically, over the past 10 years, someone who had a portfolio of $100,000 now maybe has a portfolio of $200,000. Their opportunity to give money away has doubled over the course of 10 years. And the average donation uh, that someone makes of, out of their annual revenue of their disposable income is about 2%. 
every year it varies between 2, 2.1, 2.2. So of every $100 that people make, they'll be donating about two. So traditionally, that person that had that $100,000 portfolio would be annually donating $2,000. Now, anyone who has a this $200,000 portfolio will be raising uh, will be donating $4,000. So just naturally people will be giving more and their stats to back that up in 2017 was the first time in philanthropic history that we broke the $400 billion mark in uh, in dollars donated. So in 2017 we hit $410 billion that we've given away um, and which is the highest that has ever been traditionally, like in 2007, 2008, 2009, all these years, even before the recession, it was ranging from 300 to 350 billion. So in 2017, being at 410 billion is is the highest that it's ever been. That means people are giving away more than they ever have in in our history. So that's the first economic indicator or indicator why it's important now. And again, you know this this business cycle happens every 10 years or so. So we might be coming up at a recession soon. So if this history were to tell us anything, it would say that in the next five years, there's a good chance we'll have a correction in the market. Something will happen. Um, We don't know what it will be. We can't predict it. Otherwise, if we could, we'd all be a lot more rich now. But um, history will tell us that we will go through a recession in the next five or so years. Um, So that's begging the argument that we should be locking in gifts now versus waiting uh, for the next few years because who knows what the future is going to hold. Take advantage of the market at its high and go for those gifts now versus later. So that's the first part. The second part is uh, talking about the baby boomer generation. So Baby boomer generation is anyone that was born between 1944 and 1964. Uh, That's right now around the age of 55 to 75 years old. This is the wealthiest or richest generation in the history of the United States. They hold, this category holds 70% of the current disposable income. So at one point, this generation is going to start to transfer their wealth after they pass away. So it's going to be this generation that will slowly start to pass away and give their estates, their wills, uh, their IRAs to their next uh, next of kin. So it could be their children, but also a lot of times that's philanthropy um, through planned giving. Uh, a lot of people will give bequests. Um, well, they will they will take parts of their IRAs and donate to charity. They will. Uh, set up life insurance policy so the uh, charity will get the life insurance policy upon death. Um, So this is going to start happening slowly over the next 10, 20 years as this generation is to age out. But I'm not saying that, you know, everyone's going to die tomorrow and we're going to see this big wealth of uh, uh, transfer of wealth. What I am saying is that now you should be talking to anyone who fits in this band of age about plan giving. You want to get in their wills now before other organizations do or before a catastrophic event happens and they do pass because bequests 
and other things in their will will be probably five times as great as they would annually donate. Um, so the, the point is that you should be speaking with this band of donors now versus later about getting in their will. Um, it's, it's incredibly important to do, to be ahead of schedule with this versus waiting and then being like, oh, too late. So that's the second part. The third part is uh, probably uh, the, the least sexiest or most, least interesting, but it's a fact. The tax law that just uh, was changed by Trump in uh, 2017-2018 here kept the charitable deduction. It's now, with all the other deductions kind of going away, a lot of uh, like uh, business expense deductions going away, you can only deduct 10000 towards state and local taxes. Um, the other deductions going away, the charitable deduction is becoming much uh, more powerful tool to use to get de deductions. So if you're not taking the standard deduction, which is 24000 uh, for a married couple, 12000 for a single person, um, if you're itemizing, itemizing your deductions, which means you have more deductions than 24000 you're going to be more interested in making charitable donations because it increases your, uh, the amount you're allowed to deduct. This has been around for a while, uh, you know, the charitable deduction. It's not, it's not anything new, but what, what you should know or what we should take advantage of, the fact that this can change with another president or another, um, you know, if the House or Senate were to change, you know, this can change. So we should take advantage of while it still exists and while it's and it's on people's minds to make sure that they take advantage of the charitable deduction. So all of those three things, you have your economy growing, you have your uh, wealth transfer, and then you have a charitable friendly tax law. All of those things, three things happening right now just pushes the issue that you should be taking advantage of this moment and asking for gifts that you traditionally would not be asking for. One really unique part about campaigns is that since you're asking for such a large gift and you say to someone, hey, um, you know, we really want you to donate $10 million to this campaign. Well, that's a really large gift for anybody. And they're not going to want to just liquidate their portfolio and give you $10 million in cash. What they'll want to do is some type of blended gift. Maybe it's a million dollars a year over the next five years. Great. Then the other five million, they'll probably want to do in planned giving. So that part right there, the blended gift option, uh, both very well or fits very well within the two points of the economic indicators locking in cash now while the economy is doing well. And then two, taking advantage of the wealth transfer, planned gifts, getting in their will, um, setting up uh, maybe it's a clat or or um, a, a bequest or, or a life insurance policy, whatever it may be, whatever plan giving tactic you want to take, but set that up now to be on the receiving end in the next 10, 15 years when this donor does pass. So all those combined, we've found that now is the time to be embarking on any type of capital campaign where you're asking for incremental or larger gifts than you traditionally would, or any type of um, major gift process or uh, engagement with high net worth individuals um, asking for donations larger than you traditionally would.
So I just rambled on for maybe five minutes there, George, but um, I hope that that all makes sense and I'd love to, to hear any clarifying questions that I can answer. Yeah. And just to summarize here, you know, point one is, look, times are good. The cliff for uh, a financial restart may be near. Uh, number two, baby boom wealth uh, transfer is epic, sizable, never seen before in history. Plan giving is an option, an opportunity. Number three, tax law cometh and goeth. Right now it cometh and it is uh, for at least the next couple of years or until uh, whatever changes in present happens, uh, look, that is the the current climate and these three factors are working together. So waiting and saying, we'll get around to it is not there. Uh, well, George, you said that in 30 seconds. I said it in five minutes. Pretty good. Well, <laughs> I want to get to a couple points here uh, because this is exciting. I think there are people listening right now saying, sure, CJ, super easy because you basically seem like you can pick up the phone and like call these millionaires. I have, you know, recently been pushing a lot around digital fundraising, building our lists, coming up with, uh, you know, a large list of, you know, small donors that are, are supporting an organization. But inevitably, one of the things that I miss, and I want you to help here, one of the things that I miss, you know, when I'm talking to that strategy of saying, look, get 10,000, 20,000 people on that email list, get yourself a few hundred donors, is the fact that inside of that list of donors, inside of that cluster is a power law. And that power law dictates that 1% of those humans inevitably have 99% of the wealth. It is it, it's as sure as gravity that that exists in your backyard. And so I want to come back to how do we identify and approach donors that fall in that 10% window maybe of your backyard? Or am I completely backward? And by the way, everyone has a million dollars. <laughs> I wish. No, uh, that makes perfect sense. And there's two ways to approach this. So you're a nonprofit, you've been around for 10 years. What you've done is built up your database of records that you have in either Salesforce or Blackbot or any of these databases where you've collected uh, information on previous donors. If you not have not done it recently, you should, a wealth screen. Uh, this, there's plenty of services out there that, that do it. Um, you know, you can do it on iWave, you can do it on Wealth Engine, uh, you can do it on Windfall Data. All these organizations will take all your records, plug them into their system, and spit back any uh, relevant wealth information, uh, real estate holdings, where they're giving politically, uh, any donations to your organization, other organizations, etc. cetera. Um, what has happened over the past 10 years is that people have grown well, their wealth dramatically. So if you haven't done this wealth screen in the past even two years, you really should because there's going to be changes of wealth that have happened that you might not know about. So you're Again, George, back to your uh, your laws here. If you were to plug 100 people into your wealth screening, there will be one that has changed wealth uh, much higher than you would have known. And you might already know that person because they're in your database for some reason. So you might uncover donors that you might not traditionally have known had wealth. Uh, and that's a great way to build out your prospect list. That's part one. Then the other way to do it proactively is we use this software called relationship science. Basically, it uh, proves the theory of the six degrees of separation. If I want to get to Bill Gates, it will show me the six ways or uh, the six relationships I have to call upon 
to get to him. So it, that would be, I would plug into the system. I want to get you to uh, Bill Gates. It would say, you need to call George, who sits on the board with Jane, who sits on the board with Joe, who sits on the board with John, who knows Bill. This tool uses all publicly available data and information and puts it in its database and tells you how to get to that 1%. Um, it will tell you through the relationships you currently have. You can take your um, either Outlook V cards or you can build your own list of uh, people that you know, maybe it's your board members or whatever it may be. You can plug it in there and you can figure out how to get to anyone. Also, it can do the reverse where you plug in your board or, or your relationships, and it'll tell you all the people that they know that could be a potential major donor for your organization. They might not have uh, you know, been uh, affiliated with your organization yet, but it says that your board member, Jane Smith, knows um, XYZ who has given to comparable causes before. Okay, that's interesting. They might be a prospect for us. Let's go talk to the board member about that. So it's it's using technology uh, that has been really advanced over the past ten years uh, to to figure out how to get to that one percent. I mean, the best way to get to the one percent is working with the people that are closest to you and using the technology to prove relationships. Um, th these tools can do that for you. Yeah, have you ever used LinkedIn? It seems like that's also a, another option. I have used, used LinkedIn. I've also used their sales navigator. Um, the one caveat with LinkedIn is that um, it, it, the relationships are a little bit wishy-washy. And I'll say also the same thing with relationship science. How do you know that XYZ board member actually knows XYZ board member? You really don't. And you kind of run the same game with LinkedIn. They might have just uh, connected at an event and don't really know each other at all. Um, that's absolutely a, a, a caution that can happen. Um, but, you know, if the relationship is real and LinkedIn shows you that it's real, that's great. And it works. And you should take advantage of it. All right. So my next, my next piece where, I mean, we're walking down the, the funnel here. It's great. We have taken our donor list. We have identified opportunities. We've used relationship science and said, all right, here are our 37 targets. This next part is so hard for so many of us. How do we approach somebody of means in a way that doesn't make it feel like you are directly after their wallet? Mm-hmm. You have to build your case, okay? So nonprofits and companies are alike in the fact that companies are selling widgets, but nonprofits are selling their programs and the work that they're doing. Nonprofits have... <laughs> 10 times of a harder sell. Convince someone to give away their limited disposable income to fund something that they will get zero return from or, or will not have anything tangible that they can you know, play with, like an iPod or anything like that. Um, what you have to do when you're approaching these major donors is present your case and present it in a way that pulls at what they care about and are interested in and get them to buy into what you are saying and want to help you do whatever it is you are doing. So it's really about building that story, building that case for support that will attract someone um, of, of means or even of you know, a more grassroots level that will, will actually want to support and be a part 
of all the great work that you're doing. It's one of the hardest things in the world. It, it's it's ten times harder than selling an iPhone, you know, because you you get nothing nothing back, nothing tangible back, um, which makes it very difficult job. And just as you pointed out to you, you said it's one of the hardest things to do to go from that list of 36 to actually get a donor. It's 36 meetings, and then it's another 36, and then maybe you get 10 interested, and then five will, you know, maybe donate something, but one of them will become your major donor board member. Uh, it's a it's a game of numbers, and unfortunately, it's a lot of hard work and time. So we're chasing down meetings. Our goal from that 37 is let's get meetings either on the phone or ideally in person, move toward maybe some sort of site visit. And we're working toward identity alignment, making sure that the change that they uh, see themselves making in the world uh, is realized and aligned with what you are doing. And in, in that sale, you're then bringing them in. And it seems like the capital campaign is the excuse to have the conversation to make an ask of a size that won't leave money on the table. And I want to come back to this yeah. idea of leaving money on the table because I think this is what you're pushing us on. Now, many people are already getting money, small amounts of money uh, online and other ways, otherwise from, from these fields that say, oh, what is the largest donation field we have on our form? It happens to be $1,000. Somebody clicked $1,000 like it was nothing, sent it to us, and we didn't follow up in a any different way. And what we're effectively doing is it seems like cannibalizing with these smaller asks because we're not capturing value of the fact that we could have put two, three zeros in front of mm -hmm. some of these asks had we had the right conversations, had we made you know the, the opportunity to say, hey, here is a legacy level change that you can make by joining this capital campaign. Your name in lights, big chicken dinner, like what does it look like as we're building our, our capital campaign pool? Do we need one donor? It seems like you said one donor to do it, but um, it depends on the size though, right? Yeah. So for capital campaigns, the rule of thumb and you know, there's a few different numbers that people throw out, but 90% of the revenue should be generated from 10% of your donors. So every capital campaign- One more time. I just want to make sure people really feel and hear that number. Yep, 90% of your revenue comes from 10% or less of your donors. So what we find in capital campaigns, the process is um, it, a lot of folks do the, the feasibility study and test the case, make sure that your sales documents are in order uh, and start to get buy-in from many of the major donors. But the most important part is going to be your, your quiet phase before you go public and after the other 90% of donors for the other 10% of revenue. Um, the quiet phase is going to be your most important part where you are cultivating those 10, 20, 30 most important high net worth major donors. And that will define the rest of the success for your campaign. Um, that process alone should require the most attention, uh, the most cultivation, uh, most strategy and thought. And then you go into your public phase where you say, okay, we've already you know, raised seven of the 10 million and um, we'd love everybody's support and um, everyone can get involved and here's how you can and here's what recognition opportunities are available. Um, what's also interesting with capital campaigns is it's really a time where you have something tangible to offer 
where let's give it, for example, it is a hospital and naming rights are very important to some people. Um, capital campaigns gives people the opportunity to name rooms, uh, buildings, whatever it may be. And that can influence people to go to the higher level. I wouldn't say it's the main driver, but it is it is definitely something that makes it more unique and more interesting to people to get involved because of that tangible name recognition or community recognition um, or whatever it may be. Uh, so again, a long-winded answer to your question, but I hope that answered it. <laughs> yeah. And I think some of that nuance of a private stage, nobody wants to be the sort of first penguin in the water, uh, so to speak, when it's like putting your money out there in a capital campaign raise. So it's important. It seems like to align that initial anchor donor that, you know, you, you kick it off with saying, hey, we already have X percent of our overall thing. So, you know, you're joining a winning team. It's going to, you know, meet fruition. Um, I want actually a little sidebar here because I want to test out some some knowledge that I bring from from poker that I've heard applied to mm-hmm. sort of being in the room when that ask has to happen and something that could make the difference of hundreds of thousands of dollars. In poker, when you're playing sort of Texas Hold'em and going around, it's actually more profitable. You make more money late position, meaning after you see what everyone else has done, after you get to watch the response of the card, after you get to see how they're betting and then make your choice. That's where you make your money. That's where you play your most hands, late position. It means that you want to see and get as much information as possible. So I was taught in those sort of meetings to never put out a freaking number. If someone's sitting there, you open up the dialogue, you leave space. How much would you like to come in for? We're trying to close 2.5 million or 5 million in this. Where do you see yourself on that? Rather than, you know what, we could use $100,000 to get us going. And you may have just lost a bunch of money. Am I in, am I in crazy town here? What am I talking here? Well, I love that analogy. And I'm a horrible poker player. So I'm actually going to say we the should play. We should play soon. <laughs> Fair. I'd love to. Um, so... What's interesting is I'll take the other side of it because when you're going to go meet with a major donor, you're going to do your background research prior to that meeting. You're going to understand where they've donated before. You're going to understand what they care about. You're going to understand their history at your organization. You should come into that meeting with a number either written down on your piece of paper that is higher than you would have traditionally thought that avoids or make sure you don't get into the problem where you're letting them dictate a smaller number. Um, You start higher. And this actually just goes back to the original point that I was talking about how right now you should be asking for more than you ever traditionally have. You should start, start higher, let them react, take some time to think about it. And they'll probably come back saying, Oh, I can't do that. And you say, okay, here's a perfect opportunity to say, take half of that in cash, but then let's do the other half in your will. Now you're on to something because they came back to you said, you said, I want 10, they said five, but you're saying, how about five plus five in 10 years? Now what you've done is essentially secure the same gift, but structured it in a different way. So that's why I'm always about making sure to go in with a number in mind based on research, based on as much uh, hypothesis, basically, educated guess based on what you know and higher than you traditionally would anticipate or would ask. Um, writing it down so you can't chicken out and walk away, 
And even if it was a proposal, having something ready to give to him, so you really can't walk away. You can't, you know, shove that paper in your coat pocket. You have to show them. Um, that way, you're going to get the larger number out there, and you're going to work with him or her to figure out what that exact number is in the end. Hopefully, with the combination of plan giving or other tools, you can actually get to that high number. I love this because you're talking about anchoring and anchoring is so powerful and you're setting it in the right ballpark and you're exactly right. If you left it completely up, up to, you know, the, the fates, they would come up with a, a sort of patchy on the back number. And if you are able to write that number down, if you are able to set the standard saying, you know, we're talking to million dollar gifts here, we're talking to people that are writing six figure checks. Uh, can I count you in at this level? This is where, you know, this conversation is look it level sets everybody. Uh, this is, this is just great. I hope, you know, like this one even back and forth just saves somebody from making a terrible mistake. You're about to walk into a big donor meeting. Yeah. And they, you know, anchoring has been around forever, you know, really psychological, powerful tool. Um, and it works in businesses as well. You know, so if you were to uh, think about purchasing something and they say it's a hundred dollars, all of a sudden your mind, you know, it's relative to a hundred dollars. So if they give it to you for 95, you think you got a deal. When, when in reality, maybe it's only worth 50. But um, anchoring, it kind of works in the same way with other donors who are thinking about joining. So you go into this meeting with your top donor and you uh, secure this 10 million. Now that's anchored as the top level to be. So every other major donor that's swimming in your circle of this capital campaign will look at this $10 million and say, oh, dang all right, I uh, need to be somewhere near that. So maybe when they were initially thinking of a 5 million, now they're thinking of eight or nine because they want to be close to that anchor. Um, it has the same effect. It's a really powerful psychological tool, but it also works wonders uh, and can be very helpful in capital campaigns. I will put in the, uh, in the official record that you were able to use swimming and a whale sort of related analogy and pun there. So uh, points awarded. Um, thank you. Uh, as we play, continue, I actually want to move into a pro versus con game of should we launch our capital campaign for, and I'm going to give you the, the, the landscape here. Here's our landscape. We've got a, an organization that's been in operation for about 10 years. They have about, you know, they hover between one and $2 million uh, in and revenue, unless you're thinking like that's way too small, we'll say one to five million, maybe give us a little broader range. And thinking about a capital campaign versus just doubling down on the, the the long tail digital fundraising storytelling stuff going on. What side do you want? I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna have to take the capital campaign. God bless. Good luck. All right. Would you like to begin? I, I'm all happy to begin because capital campaign is an all encompassing campaign. Inside of the capital campaign, you have your annual donations, your digital fundraising, but also it's the incremental gift on top of what they traditionally would have given. Um, so if let's keep numbers around, your ask is for 100,000. They traditionally give $20,000 a year through your online fundraising or anything digital. Now it's 80,000 that uh, is the extra that will be counted as part uh, of, of the whole gift will be part of the capital campaign. So capital campaigns are actually completely encompassing annual, digital, um, major, anything 
to anything raised throughout the year right, will be pooled in the Calvin I'm going to dig my way out of a hole on this. <laughs> claim that your thing is all of the things. What I will say to that, though, is I need to, as a small organization, mid-sized, have to allocate staff to these conversations. You're talking about having yeah. 37 conversations, and guess what? The cycle time, it seems like, to close on this is quite some time. So what if I outlay the expense for, let's say, $80,000 to – pay for a human to just do this and I don't get to see results for at least a year. This sounds like a huge risk uh, in terms of, you know, my outlay of capital in staff time. What do you say to that? When you say my outlay of capital in staff time, are you talking about on the digital front or? Yeah, I'm or... talking about uh, I'm the CEO of this, uh, of this nonprofit and I know I need to hire a, you know, large gifts human or allocate somebody in my staff to spend time doing it because those conversations are not happening unless you're saying that it's my time as the CEO doing that, in which case it's still a, a huge outlay of time and a long-term down the road type of potential return. What say you? Yep. Staffing. It's a great question and it's a tough one. Um, the one thing in life that you can't sell is time. So it's really a return on investment type conversation. Um, my, I'm a firm believer that major gifts have, right in this current economy uh, and life cycle, have the greatest return on investment. So if you're spending 20 hours um, doing an annual mailing versus 20 hours trying to find that one whale or that one major gift, your time will be better spent or you get a better return on investment searching for that one major gift because it will be 10x what you can raise traditionally through an annual fundraising campaign or you know, annual mailing or something like that. That's my personal opinion and people can absolutely take the other side of that. Um, but I believe that the best ROI right now is a major gift. Alrighty. To that I say, uh, and I'll have to quote a contemporary thinker, uh, I crashed my own house party because nobody came. I believe that was the Beastie Boys. <laughs> I am concerned. I'm concerned as my organization puts it out there in the world that we're trying to raise $3 million. We've never done this before. Capital campaign, I'm going to push it out there. I'm going to tell all our founders and donors and stakeholders. Uh, and my board is going to look at me sideways saying, you're really going to get $3 million? <laughs> and if I don't, I'm going to get fired, CJ. Like, literally, it's going to be embarrassing. I'm going to crash my own house party. No one's going to come in on this, and it'll be yet another wild scheme I came up with because guess what? I couldn't make it happen. That's a really good point, George. And so before you do a marathon, you don't tell anyone that you're going to do the marathon unless you've at least done a half a marathon or tried out and tested to make sure you can do the full thing. It's kind of the same philosophy. So if you're going to put out there that you're going to raise 3 million, you need to do some strategy and you need to have introductory conversations, uh, informational conversations with some of your major stakeholders to make sure that they at least have some sort of interest in what you're proposing. Um, if it is you're proposing $3 million to build an endowment, you need some backing on, on people that would have interest in what you are doing before announcing that to your board. A lot of those strategy conversations should be with your board anyway. So you should be talking with them in advance. Say, hey, I have this crazy idea that I heard from this podcast from you know CJ and George that we should be raising these crazy amount of money. Um, here's my idea of why I want to do it and what do you think? And ask their opinion 
And as you get more people bought into your idea, then you come to the board and say, hey, I've actually spoken with all of you and we all agree and we should do this. So no one should be firing you. You should be in there for 10 years and excited and you know it should be a great experience. But you have to do your homework prior to putting out a statement that you're going to be raising XYZ and which is way above the what you've done before. I have been reading a lot about these things called donor advised funds. Actually, there's like a hundred billion dollars just trapped in there. So I feel like I'm being told that there's just tons of money in the baby boomer pockets and guess what? They're just ready to give it away. But can't they also just make those large donations to their donor advised funds, which carry the same tax benefit. So it kind of puts a damper on the whole tax point. And also this idea that, you know, they can't wait to transfer wealth to nonprofits instead of this intermediary bucket. So doesn't that completely change the strategy of capital campaigns? If people are more about sort of metering out careful, small doses of their money through DAFs. No, I actually is a nonprofit don't care if it's coming from a DAF, his checking account, or his foreign exchange account. Um, with, if a donor were to decide that they want to give XYZ amount, they can direct that XYZ amount, whether it be through their DAF, whether it be through their checking account or foreign exchange account. On my side, on the nonprofit side, it I doesn't matter to me. Um, what is interesting is this uh, rise in the popularity of DAFs and uh, people using them to simplify their charitable giving and streamline it. Um, but that's fine by me. That means, hey, they've got money sitting there that they could be directed to what I'm doing, uh, and I'm all about it. So I think on the nonprofit side, you know, they're, that it doesn't matter to them. In fact, if they know someone who has money sitting in a TAF, that's probably good news, right? All righty. You're uh, kind of hurting my points here. Uh, <laughs> I, have, I have an issue, though. Uh, we're talking about these like grandiose visions and you mentioned like an endowment that doesn't sound very sexy to be honest. Like you Mm -hmm. said, I just want a pile of cash to sit here in this corner and just sort of spit out returns. Uh, Alternatively, you know, my existing program is, you know, uh, frankly, just keeping, keeping the bus running. How do I like have to package something completely different, a whole new program to say, hey, you know, we're going to now launch in Zimbabwe, even though we have no foothold whatsoever, simply because, you know, we had these conversations and and that's where I see interest and opportunity. Isn't this going to drag my organization in a different direction that won't help us if I have to go this big all of a sudden? So endowments, as you mentioned earlier, are probably the least sexiest sell, however, are probably the most important. So the great thing about endowments is is that you're funding your programs in perpetuity. So if you raise a million dollars, you know, it's five percent that you can take out of that endowment and fund whatever program it is. So endowments are probably the best thing an organization can raise money for and the most helpful because it's constantly annual revenue every single year. Um, it's the least sexiest thing to sell. However, if you can approach a donor and, and tell that story of why it's so important that their money will be better suited uh, to go into an endowment than to uh, pay annually every year, then you'll be for the better. Um, it takes a very uh, powerful case statement. It takes a very uh, eloquent and um, uh, knowledgeable 
fundraiser to have those conversations and explain the math behind it. Um, in the end, it's probably one of the most effective ways to keep your organization going on for perpetuity. Um, in your other question about the distracting from what you're doing on your day-to-day, any campaign you'd want to position it as what we're doing in this campaign is we are keeping what we're doing today. We're keeping your annual uh, revenue, which we'll need, and we're going above and beyond what we've traditionally done. So if you're hundred, if you're thinking about a hundred thousand dollar gift, you know, we want that 20,000 to continue to go into our programs like you do every year. It's that extra 80,000 that's going to go above and beyond um, what you traditionally have done. Um, so it's, all additional, but at the same time, you can't cannibalize what your annual operations need. Um, you just have to keep that in mind as a fundraiser and make sure that your donor knows that as well. Um, it's just about education, education, education. All righty. I have to admit, uh, I usually win these just being totally unbiased. Uh, I'm not sure this time. Uh, that I have have accurately won this one, but we'll let the, the jury of our audience decide. <laughs> Thank you for playing along. I want to move into our rapid fire round, but before I do any sort of last minute, but wait, tips, advice, pieces that you've sort of left out, or I can't believe George didn't talk about the, the classic credit card swipey. <laughs> No, you know, um, I, I, the last thing I will say is us as fundraisers, we've, the importance of technology in our day-to-day lives has increased 10x over the past few years. And, um, you know, as a firm and just selfishly, like we're all fundraisers, we've dedicated time to learn about every piece of software that exists out there. And part of the reason why we cross tasks with you um, and it's made our lives as fundraisers uh, 10 times easier and better um, because we know how to raise money faster and faster than we traditionally have and cheaper than we traditionally have. Uh, it makes us uh, be able to raise more money and fund more of our programs. Um, it's going to be just like every industry. It's going to be part of us forever and it's going to be taking over the way we do our business. So we've just embraced it and, and gone, gone all in on learning everything that's out there and exists. And I would say if anyone else is a fundraiser out there, spend, you know, maybe a half an hour a day just to test some things out to see maybe this product or that product will make your life in the end, 10 times easier than it would, was traditionally. Um, that would be one thing I would say is really important to, to us and myself uh, as I've been going through all this fundraising career. Brilliant and shameless plug for our tool that you're talking about, Lighthouse, which <laughs> adds on to Google Analytics and allows you to see exactly what user behavior uh, is being done by emails that you've collected. Already, um, this in-game announcement brought to you by. <laughs> All right, buddy. Bye. I want to go to rapid fire. Rapid fire time, 30 second or less responses. Shoot. And here we go. What is one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? Jeez, George, I could literally go on for another hour, but I will say one thing that we love is Canva. Canva is a free marketing tool. So anytime you have to build a case statement or a proposal or anything that needs some spice, some flair, some good looks to it, uh, Canva's free. Um, we've built case statements on there. Uh, we've built really like everything, gala marketing materials, invitations, whatever you, whatever you need. 
um, it'll be on there and it is free. Canva.com slash nonprofit. Tech issues. What tech issues are you battling with right now? Yeah, I think uh, uh, databases are always a challenge. Um, you know, there's so much information in there, but making it work for you, uh, making it a moves management tool is one of the hardest things that we find. It's, okay, I met with this person, but I need to set a follow-up, and, and that follow-up needs to come to the top of my inbox in two weeks so I don't forget. Um, it's getting it to that point that is really challenging for a lot of organizations, um, and there are some great tools that out, out there that help. But that's one of the biggest things we've, we've seen um, as, as just people are overloaded with data and don't know how to organize it in a way that's helpful for them. What is coming in the next year that has you the most excited? You know, I love the product. I'm going to do a completely shameless plug here. I love the product that we built. Uh, it's called Charifieds. Uh, they see uh, classifieds for charity. Basically, nonprofits can go and post projects that they need help with, whether it be an invitation design or a grant writer whatever it may be, they can post what they need and freelancers and service providers can respond directly on the site and you can uh, pay for their services on the site. Uh, it's very helpful for smaller organizations that are looking uh, to work maybe with uh, someone by the hour or um, uh, someone a little bit cheaper. Uh, it's a great source for that and uh, hopefully we'll be building that out to the market um, over the next year or so. And that's okay. my pure shameless plug. Talk about a mistake you made early in your career that now shapes the way you do things today. I think one of the best things that I learned earlier in my career was about honesty. Um, I used to be a trader, and uh, the difference between you know 3.89 yield and 3.90 yield could be hundreds and thousands of dollars. And um, it's about uh, if you don't have the right wrong yield or you have the wrong statement, you own up and you make sure that the, the correct statement is out there. And I think that just applies throughout everything I'm doing when dealing with donors um, or dealing with any nonprofits. It's about honesty. Um, it's about telling them what I do know. And if there is something that I don't know, I say, well, dang, I really have no idea, but I'm going to figure that out and come back. Um, I think that that uh, mentality has been very helpful throughout my life career, and uh, especially when working with nonprofits where it's very sensitive information. Do you believe that nonprofits can successfully go out of business? I think that nonprofits can't. If you're out of business, you're not raising any money. You're not funding the programs that you want to fund. Um, I don't know in a situation where that would be successful. I have heard of mergers before, um, even though those are tricky in themselves and very touchy-feely. Um, but my overall opinion about the, the question in general is it's not really. If I put you in the hot tub time machine and took you back to the first days when you were at the OR group, what advice would you give yourself? First days at the OR group, uh, well, this is a family firm and I've been here for how old am I now? Well, I'm not going to say that live on a podcast been involved my entire life, and uh, I wish that when I was in high school interning and, and things like that, that I was more involved in the computer science tech side of the platform. Um, I think that uh, being you know, involved at a younger age would have helped me uh, tremendously uh, to where I am now, because as I just mentioned, you know, we've been or looking into tech for the past few years, but we could have been doing it for many years before that. And I think that was, a, 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 in hindsight, something that we would have absolutely done had we known the importance of it sooner. What is something that you think you or your organization should stop doing? One thing 
in the nonprofit industry that grinds my gears and always has is silent auctions. I know some people really like them, adds flair to events and swear by them. My opinion is there's two reasons why. One, the time is not worth it. It spends maybe five hours to secure an item, then five hours to follow up and then get the item delivered to you, then five hours to contact the person and make sure everything's done. 15 hours for a $300 gift card. Then the ROI is not there. Um, sometimes you know it's an airline ticket that's worth a thousand dollars, but it raises five hundred. You could have spent um, that time trying to raise anything, any other dollar amount. Uh, I just don't think the return on investment is there. Maybe after twenty silent auction items, you raise twenty-five thousand dollars. That ROI just doesn't add up for me, and I think it's something that I'd like to see our industry go away from. This rant brought to you by CJ Orr. <laughs> I need some more coffee for that response. <laughs> if you had a Harry Potter style magical wand that you could wave across the nonprofit industry, what would it do? And you can't say get rid of silent auctions. <laughs> That's fair. If I had a Harry Potter wand, I would, and there's actually some databases that are coming out uh, that are trying to adapt to this. Um, one that we've kind of done a little bit with would be gravity. But one one I'd love to have is if I can walk in every day and I have a database that spits out who I need to call, why, and for what reason. It's because yeah, they usually give at XYZ during the year. They have just increased wealth or did a sale of their company, and you probably should call them now before everybody else does. If I had a database uh, that told me where the, the revenue or the return on investment would be for my calls, uh, I think that would be exceptionally helpful. How did you get started in the social impact space? Uh, as I, I mentioned earlier, this is a uh, family little shop here. Uh, I've been interning uh, at Aura Group for most of my life uh, throughout college, uh, a little bit after college, even high school a little bit. And uh, I officially came over after um, working in finance uh, and have been here for full-time for about six years. So it's been a long journey, uh, but it, you know, the speci especially the past six years have been incredibly fruitful and helpful um, to learning more about the sector. It's been a really fun ride. What advice would you give college grads looking to enter the social impact sector? One thing I didn't realize was as important as now that I'm in this seat looking back, in hindsight, I wish that I built a stronger and more professional network in college and right out of college. I think it took me a few years to uh, understand the importance of it and understand the importance of um, communication and uh, staying close with work colleagues. Uh, I think if I were to go back and graduate, I would first and foremost, um, especially in the job search, is start to build the network, my network. Uh, and meeting with people in the industry and understanding what they do because there's so many nuances of, of things to do in this industry. And the more people you know, the more people you can talk to about what they do, the more uh, educated decision you can make on where you want to be uh, when it comes to joining the sector. All right, CJ, final question. How do people find you? How do people help you? Due to the power of the internet, we could be found at www.orgroup.com. 
We are a group of, as I mentioned in the beginning of the call, 55 fundraisers. Uh, we love everything that involves raising money, whether it be from strategy or boots on the ground uh, fundraising. For some organizations, we're serving as their interim major gift officers, annual fund managers, uh, plan giving officers, um, whatever it may be, as long as it uh, has fundraising or development tied to it, we're all in. Um, we can be found uh, on on our website or my information is, you guess it, my name, CJ or at orgroup.com. Uh, so feel free to, to reach out to me anytime. Always happy to have a conversation. One of our mantras at our firm is, if we can't help you, uh, which many times may be the case, um, we will find someone who can, uh, which get to my point earlier is why we actually built that platform card terrifies because we want to make sure that every nonprofit that we work with has a solution for their problems and we want to be able to help steer people in the right direction. Well, thank you so much for giving unselfishly of your time and knowledge. Uh, as you mentioned before, can't be, uh, can't be bought. So we appreciate it and good luck. And George, thank you. I appreciate you having me and um, hopefully we all learned something here today. As always, resources may be found at wholewhale.com slash podcast. This is episode number 121. This has been Using the Whole Whale. For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com slash podcast. And consider following us on Twitter at Whole Whale. And thanks for joining us.